Well, let me uh, begin with a recent article by New York Times uh, columnist Anthony Lewis in which he defends the media against the charge that they've become too independent and too powerful for the public good. Uh, he writes that the press is protected by the First Amendment, not for its own sake, but to enable a free political system to operate. In the end, the concern is not for the reporter or the editor, but for the citizen critic of government. What's at stake when we speak of freedom of press, he says, is the freedom to perform a function on the behalf of the polity. Uh, Lewis goes on to cite Supreme Court justices and other judges who observed, these are all quotes, that no individual can obtain for himself the, in the information needed for the intelligent discharge of his political responsibilities by enabling the public to assert meaningful control over the political process. The press performs a crucial function in affecting the societal purpose of the First Amendment. Therefore, quotes, a, a cantankerous press, an obstinate press, a ubiquitous, ubiquitous press must be suffered by those in authority in order to preserve the even greater values of freedom of expression and the right of the people to know. Uh, now, I do not think that we should accept the view that freedom of expression has to be defended in instrumental terms by virtue of its contribution to some higher good, rather it's a value in itself. But that apart, these ringing declarations do express valid aspirations, and they surely express the general uh, self-image of the American media. Now, the question is, what's the relation between that self-image and the facts? The facts seem to me to show something rather different, namely in contrast to the conception of the media as cantankerous, obstinate, obstinate and ubiquitous in their search for truth and their independence of authority, the actual evidence appears to show with quite considerable clarity that the media do serve a societal purpose, but not that of enabling the public to assert meaningful control over the political process by providing them with the information that's needed for the intelligent discharge of political responsibilities, as was just quoted. On the contrary, the actual societal purpose which the media serve very effectively is to inculcate and defend the economic, uh, social, and political agenda of privileged groups that dominate the domestic society and the state. The media serve this societal purpose in many ways through selection of topics, distribution of concerns, framing of issues, filtering of information, emphasis, and tone. I think we should agree with Chief Justice Hughes, whom Lewis also cites, on the primary need of a vigilant and courageous press if democratic processes are to function in a meaningful way. But the evidence shows clearly enough that this need is not met or even weakly approximated uh, in actual practice. Now, the reasons for the overwhelming tendencies which I'm describing, they are overwhelming tendencies. You can find uh, a deviation here and there. But the reasons for the overwhelming tendencies uh, in a fulfillment of this actual societal purpose, these reasons are not particularly obscure on uh, essentially guided free market assumptions that are not at all controversial. Uh, simply think about what the private media are. In essence, the private media are major corporations uh, that have a market, namely other businesses called advertisers, and they sell a product, namely readers and audiences, uh, to these other businesses. From, a, from an institutional point of view, that's what the corporate media are. 
Uh, furthermore, the national media, or the ones that are most influential in setting the general political agenda and so on, they typically target and they serve elite opinion, uh, groups which on the one hand provide an optimal profile, as it's called, for advertising purposes uh, and therefore maximize revenue, uh, and on the other hand, uh, play uh, in accordance with this critic, who again is about at the outer limits of dissent. Uh, well, that's a sample of just the dovish extreme, and there it goes over to the Hawks. Uh, uh, coming back to the, uh, there, there is then, there was at that time, there remains tactical debate among elites, uh, but there also is a consensus, and that's uh, also clearly reflected in the 85 columns. The consensus has a number of properties to it. For one thing, the consensus is obviously you've got to be anti-Sandinistic, uh, and in fact, out of 85 columns, 85 were anti-Sandinistic, most of them harshly so, some less harshly. Uh, that means 100% conformity on the major issue. That's a considerable victory for the Office of Public Diplomacy of the State Department and Operation Truth, as they called it. So that's part of the elite consensus. You're only in the debate if you accept certain assumptions. Uh, second uh, point has to do with some of the differences between Nicaragua and uh, uh, say, El Salvador, the other relevant states, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Actually, there's more to say about Costa Rica than people believe, but let's put it aside. So let's just talk about Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. There's one striking difference between Nicaragua and the others. Uh, one, the most striking difference is that of those four, Nicaragua is the only one that doesn't slaughter its own population. Now, how many, how many columns discuss that? Well, the answer is zero. There's not one word in 85 columns referring to that distinction, uh, which again reflects the elite consensus. Third, uh, there's, a, there's another striking difference between Guatemala and the other states, and that is, as is not controversial, uh, the, between Nicaragua and the other states, uh, it's not controversial that in the early phases of the Sandinista Revolution, they did direct resources to social reform with rather dramatic success, in fact, until uh, U.S. violence succeeded in uh, restoring them to the Central American mode, or so it's hoped. Uh, so how many references, and that's unique in that respect, how many references are there to that? Well, in 85 columns, there are in fact two phrases referring to that fact. Uh, there are zero phrases referring to uh, successful economic development prior to the U.S. attack, although there's no doubt that it placed. In fact, they had the highest growth rate in Latin America with the uh, increase in production of subsistence crops and so on. Uh, there's no reference to the reports of charitable development agencies such as Oxfam or to the World Bank or the International Amer uh, uh, Inter-American Development Bank or other sources which would in fact uh, uh, explain and discuss these things. They're just uh, not part of the debate. Uh, well, all of this reflects a number of things. First of all, it reflects the unimportance of mass slaughter, social reform, uh, economic development and so on uh, as compared with what's really important and crucial, namely restoring Nicaragua to the Central American mode, as illustrated, say, in the two U.S. terror states or in Honduras. Uh, uh, furthermore, it reflects uh, an elite consensus on enforcing regional arrangements on Nicaragua and Nicaragua alone. Now, you take a look at the 85 columns, there are a few nuances, and when I discussed it in print, there's some comments about that, but that's the general picture, very accurately. Well, that study was actually brought to Tom Wicker's attention by, by some reader, and he expressed his reaction to it on December 31st, 1987, where he reviewed his possible errors over the years. And he has a, 
a statement to make about the study, which I doubt that he's ever seen. Uh, he says, criticism by foot rule or calculator is often as simplistic as the reportage it purports to measure. Now that's an interest. that's a total comment. It's an interesting comment. Now there could be things wrong with the study, like maybe the facts are wrong, or maybe it's a badly chosen sample, or maybe used the wrong methodology or whatever, but those are not the criticisms. The criticism is just don't study that topic. It's not a legitimate topic. Uh, any possible rational analysis of the media is off, is improper and illegitimate. Uh, that's essentially the meaning of that. Uh, 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 you can't discuss the way the media satisfy their uh, uh, societal function. No analysis is admissible. Uh, there are a few other comments which I won't review, but that's the core of it. Well, take a look at that and think about it, and you see very clearly the kinds of defense mechanisms that the uh, that uh, prevent even, in this case, probably the most dissident journalists uh, within the permissible spectrum, that is, uh, from uh, facing any rational analysis of the system uh, within which they fulfill their societal function. That reflects what I said before. Some kinds of critiques simply aren't intelligible. They're unacceptable. Uh, they uh, escape the principles of the ideological system, and therefore you can't hear them. Uh, I might mention here that for any of those of you who are interested in intellectual history will notice that this degree of blindness and thought control goes far beyond, say, the period of uh, the medieval period. Uh, medieval theologians, say Thomas Aquinas, they felt they had to listen to heresy. In fact, they had to respond to it. They had to analyze it and figure out answers and so on. Now we've achieved a much higher degree of thought control. You just can't hear it. It's enough to say maybe, you know, criticism can be wrong. That ends the discussion. Uh, well, let me mention a second study, this one unpublished yet. Uh, this one deals with the first six months of 1987, same two newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, again covering all opinion pieces, uh, columnists and uh, invited uh, op-ed writers. Uh, and in, that, in those six months, there were 61 relevant to U.S. policy in Nicaragua. Now, those 61, 13 preferred negotiations that, you remember, at, we're now at a point where elite opinion, guys who own the place and run the show, is very much against contra aid, preferring other means of restoring the Central American mode. So of the 61, 13 preferred negotiations contra aid and say nothing about the Sandinistas. That leaves 48 that expressed some kind of opinion about Nicaragua. Of the 48, 46 were anti-Sandinista, 18 of them pro-Contra, 28 anti-Contra, uh, primarily on the grounds that the Contras are inept and can't win, or that the, I'm quoting now, the U.S. goal of forcing Nicaragua into the American democratic mold is not worth the risk. That's John Oakes at the extreme of dissent. So we now have two of 48 that expressed some sympathy for the Sandinistas. One was by the Nicaraguan ambassador, Carlos Tunerman, who was allowed to write a column, so we can dispense with that, which means, in fact, one. Uh, and that one was by Dr. Uh, Kevin Cahill, uh, the director of the Tropical Disease Center at uh, Lenox Hill Hospital in New York, who happens to be the only commentator who could draw upon personal experience in Nicaragua and elsewhere in the third world. His was only also the only column among 61 that took note of the successful Nicaraguan health and literacy programs and what he calls the struggle against oppression waged under conditions of extreme adversity imposed by U.S. terror. Cahill's is also one of the two contributions among 61 
that mention the World Court decision, there are two others, one by Tunnerman that have a kind of an oblique reference to international law. Now, that fact's also interesting. It reflects the attitude towards international law and a terrorist superpower. Uh, we read there that the, in these columns that the United States is working through the Contras to restore democracy to Nicaragua uh, and to break the Sandinistas' Cuban and Soviet ties, and that Washington's role is to help contain the spread of the Sandinista revolution beyond Nicaragua. That's the editors of the liberal Washington Post uh, who prefer taking a chance on reining in the Sandinistas by political development rather than by military assault and we're treated to charges of, uh, quoting now again, genocide of the Mosquito Indians, that's William Buckley, who concedes that the Sandinistas have not yet reached the level of Pol Pot, but they're plainly heading that way. But apart from uh, Cahill, we read not one word about the constructive policies that were successfully pursued, and that in fact, in the real world, uh, elicited U.S. terror to rein in the Sandinistas. The truism that the United that U.S. policies compelled the reliance on the Soviet Union and were explicitly designed with that goal, that's far beyond the realm of discussion, just as even the harshest critics cannot question that the United States is working to establish or even to restore democracy, which must be a reference to the Somoza period if words have any meaning at all. Uh, now, one should not be confused by the fact that there is tactical debate in the media. Obviously, there's going to be tact un under the, if the media are going to perform their societal function of serving power and privilege, they better have debate over just those issues which are, uh, are under, uh, which reflect different tactical options, and they do. But much more significant and intriguing, much more important for people who want to understand how indoctrination and ideological warfare are carried out is the shared consensus, and that's very striking. In fact, these examples, which are quite typical, illustrate the astonishing conformity to state doctrine among those segments of U.S. opinion that are permitted expression in the free press. Again, tactical debate within the framework of approved doctrine is permitted, even encouraged, but nothing more, and the exceptions are very, very marginal. Well, these same conclusions you'll find anywhere you turn. Pick your topic and you'll find them. Uh, so let's consider uh, what's lively now, the fate of the Central American Accords, the ones that were signed, the so-called RAS plan, misleading. Uh, the accords that were signed in Guatemala City in, um, in August. Now, the U.S. responded to those accords, namely it responded by sharply increasing the attack against Nicaragua. At that time, uh, U.S. CIA supply flights to the Contras were already, had already reached a phenomenal level of about one a day. Uh, they were doubled in October and apparently virtually tripled in November, so they reached a level of two to three a day. Uh, the goal was to escalate the conflict and to prevent Nicaragua from relaxing its guard so that loyal journalists could uh, deplore Sandinistic totalitarianism. Uh, that, uh, the, the Accords, uh, Discussed, identified one indispensable element for peace in the region, namely that aid to insurgent and irregular forces cease. Uh, uh, so we may ask the question, uh, how much discussion was there of this massive un, uh, attack on the Accords and the Peace Treaty? I found that, I did a review of the press on this, here's my first issue of Beta Magazine a couple weeks ago, and I found, in fact, a handful of, of phrases uh, throughout the whole press during the first three months phase of the Accords, and little enough afterwards, 
although there was incidentally some remarkable falsification in an effort to cover up the facts. For example, the New York Times, uh, uh, when Daniel Ortega came to the OAS meeting in Washington in November, mid-November, uh, he made reference to supply flights, uh, and uh, 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 Contra leader Adolfo Calero was then asked by the press whether, what he thought about that reference to 140 supply flights, and he boasted that the, num the actual number was far higher than that, uh, had the Times respond to that? At this, up to this point, it, as far as I can see, never mentioned the fact that there were supply, that CIA had es escalated supply flights and barely mentioned that they existed. The Times reacted by replacing the phrase supply flights by surveillance flights in both statements. Notice that surveillance flights are still a violation of international law in the Accords, but a less severe violation and therefore apparently more tolerable in the, news in the newspaper of record. Now, the two major reasons why these crucial facts have to be marginalized or in fact virtually totally suppressed. First, they would demonstrate that the United States has played by far the major role uh, in disrupting the Accords. Nobody else even comes close. Secondly, they would reveal the completely unacceptable fact that the Contras do not bear even a remote resemblance to guerrillas. Now, if you look at the military analyses in the press, you'll see this is conceded all the time. So Bernard Trainer, for example, who's a military correspondent of the Times a couple days ago, uh, points out what everybody knows, that if supply flights to the Contras don't go on at this level, they probably will not be able to survive. Uh, in contrast, indigenous guerrillas, authentic guerrillas, say in El Salvador, the, the guerrillas in El Salvador, actually resist a far more formidable military force than the Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan army without several supply flights a day or, in fact, without any known aid from abroad. Now, it's a crucial element of U.S. propaganda, repeated almost daily by the uh, more dutiful journalists. James Lemoyne of the Times is notable in this regard. It's a crucial element of the propaganda system that there's what they call a symmetry between uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua, where each one is facing a guerrilla insurrection with popular support. So, therefore, the facts must naturally be suppressed, as they are very effectively. Uh, the careful reader, you know, really fanatic reader, reads the whole press, could learn that CIA flights had increased so substantially since the accords were signed that the Contras are, I'm quoting, burying the equipment in their areas of operation, enabling them to fight even if the U.S. military airdrops cease. Uh, that's preparation in case Congress doesn't go along in a few days. This report, November 24th, in Newsday was considered important enough to make the Washington Post on a back page, but the facts are not sufficiently important to suggest that the U.S. may be playing a role in undermining the Accords, or to raise questions about the relation between these determined efforts to sabotage the Accords and the much maligned Nicaraguan emergency regulations uh, while the country is under attack by a terrorist superpower. Only the most careful reader will be aware that the International Commission of Verification supported the Nicaraguan position that the state of emergency need not be ended until the aggression ceases, and even the careful reader would be very likely, probably not know, that the National Assembly in uh, Nicaragua in November passed a law that decreed a complete amnesty and revoked the state of emergency, both laws, I'm quoting from the legislation, to go into effect on the date that the International Verification Follow-up Commission, created in the Guatemala City Accords, conducts the appropriate on-site verification, certifying compliance with the commitments of the Accord uh, to terminate the attack against Nicaragua. 
If you bother to look back at the Accords, you will notice that these laws passed by the Nicaraguan Assembly uh, are, are ex exactly in the terms of the Accords, which means that in November, Nicaragua had, had complied with the Accords, uh, 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 despite the uh, uh, escalating U.S. war, the vast increase in CIA supply flights. In this respect, it is radically different than Guatemala, Honduras, and uh, El Salvador. That fact is unacceptable, and therefore it just didn't affect. As far as I know, that was never even reported. Now, the media do make occasional oblique reference to the failure of the United States to lend adequate support to the Accords, but look carefully at how they do it. Latent violations in progress, namely the rapid escalation of the already phenomenal level of uh, CIA supply flights to keep the proxy army in the field, rather what they typically refer to as the plans of the Reagan administration to request contra aid. Now that's an intelligent form of deceit. It makes it appear that the press is balanced, you know, it's criticizing the U.S. government, but it conceals the ongoing actions that are far and away the most serious disruption of the Accords, and it refers simply to plans. Well, plans can later be justified by the alleged failures of the uh, reprehensible Sandinistas to comply, of course, as a result of the escalating U.S. attack, which is designed for this purpose. Uh, the actual facts are entirely unacceptable to the U.S. government and are therefore, were therefore ignored or concealed in the free press. Coming up to uh, more recent times, the New York Times on January 10th published its own comprehensive review of the Accords in the magazine section. That was January 10th. There were two articles, one by James Lemoyne on the conflict between Arias and his adversary Daniel Ortega. The other was by Stephen Kinzer asking whether Ortega can be trusted. That's the whole issue. Uh, nowhere is there one word in those two articles referring to the actions of the U.S. government to ensure that the Accords cannot be fulfilled. Uh, although these actions were by far the most serious violation of the Accords, putting in the shade even the very significant violations in the U.S. terror states. Uh, questions about the two U.S. terror states and the client state of Honduras arose only marginally in conformity with State Department priorities. The Times, for example, would not deign to report uh, that uh, Archbishop Rivera Idamas um, in early January, Arch uh, Salvadoran Archbishop, once again denounced the practice of torture used against many Salvadorans by the death squads, quoting, adding that bishops in several provinces were reporting increased death squad killings and calling for an end to death, uh, to death squad killings and torture. Uh, nor did it report that according to Western diplomats, cited by Reuters, Reuters on the day of this review, uh, the Contras are hiding in the jungles of Honduras to avoid exposing the government support for U.S.-funded Contras. However, those, that kind of suppression is insignificant as compared with the suppression of the violent escalation of the U.S. attack, which is far and away the most serious uh, step that was taken to uh, undermine the possibility that the Accords could proceed. Now, coming back to these two articles, we now have New York Times Magazine survey of the status of the Accords, two articles on Nicaragua. Uh, Lemoyne gives an account of Arias, Costa Rica's Arias, which is intended to be laudatory, but in fact, if you read it carefully and think about it, he depicts Arias as an opportunist and a moral monster uh, who is unconcerned over terror in El Salvador and Guatemala and is unconcerned over the horrible conditions that persist in Honduras or the fact that all three states are effectively under military rule backed by the United States 
and is unconcerned by the terrorism of the U.S. proxy army attacking Nicaragua. Uh, I say proxy army just because I like I use like to use Reagan administration terminology in internal documents circulated uh, in the White House by Contra supporters. That's what it's referred to as. So let's use that. Uh, in in Lemoyne's account. Uh, R.S.'s prime concern is that the Contras are, as he puts it, a military edsel, a failure, uh, so that other methods may must be found to pressure the Sandinistas, I'm quoting, to moderate their revolutionary project. Uh, before condemning R.S. too severely, we ought to bear in mind that we're seeing R.S. as viewed by James Moyne, uh, and his work is notable for its success in filtering reality to reflect state requirements. Uh, in this article, Lemoyne refers to uh, Jose Figueres uh, as correctly as the man who is widely considered the father of Costa Rican democracy. That's used as part of an attack against Nicaragua. But he does not tell us, nor to my knowledge has the U.S. press ever told us, what the father of Costa Rican democracy has actually said about the Sandinistas. For example, the following. For the first, I'm quoting him. For the first time, Nicaragua has a government that cares for its people. Uh, he found, he said, a surprising amount of support for the government on a recent visit. Uh, Nicaragua is an invaded country, uh, and the United States should allow the Sandinistas to finish what they started in peace. They deserve it. Well, comments of that kind lack ideological serviceability, uh, as does uh, Figueres' statement that he understands why La Prensa was closed, having censored the press himself. Uh, when Costa Rica was attacked by U.S.-backed Somoza government uh, in earlier years. So naturally, Central America's leading democratic figure has to be censored from the free press, as he is. That's one article. We turn to the other one, uh, the companion article by Stephen Kinzer. Uh, that denounces Ortega for numerous sins, for example, for running fraudulent elections. That's a staple of U.S. government, uh, hence the free press, always untroubled by fact. Now, as usual, Kinzer cites uh, opposition figures, but also, since he's balanced, he cites one person who identifies as an old friend of Ortega, and he's permitted to say that Ortega has regressed and no longer reads writers and philosophers, uh, as distinct from Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, who has, you know, which I've adequately surveyed, they represent the entire coverage of the Accords in the magazine section, which is a notal, not another notable contribution to the state propaganda system. Notice that that conforms precisely to the government agenda. Probably ask them, they're both against contra aid, but that's not the point. The point is they're enforcing the elite consensus, uh, the agenda of those who have power. On the same day, Lemoyne had a front page article uh, reporting, quoting them all, all the way through, that the prospects for peace in Central America appear bleak, the fault of the Sandinistas, overwhelmingly. Now, for balance, he criticizes the Reagan administration for planning renewed aid for the U.S. guerrillas in Nicaragua. That continues with the standard pretense that the proxy army are guerrillas and typically suppresses the far more important fact that the administration has acted, not just planned, to disrupt the accords. Uh, he goes on to condemn the Soviet Union for backing Nicaragua's growing army and supporting Marxist guerrillas in the region, offering no evidence for the latter charge, and ignoring the fact that Nicaragua is, after all, under increasing U.S. attack, and that all other sources of aid were consciously blocked by, the U by U.S. pressure. 
continuing, he says, both Nicaragua and El Salvador have what he calls civil conflicts. Uh, both of the times twins constantly refer to this. Uh, but El Salvador, he says, is in a stronger position than Nicaragua because it held direct talks with the guerrillas and, I'm quoting, permitted the leaders of the rebel civilian wing uh, to return from exile to hold several public meetings in El Salvador. Uh, while, he goes on to say, the rebels in El Salvador have enjoyed nearly open access to the press. That's a statement so phenomenal, I won't even comment on it. Uh, neither here nor anywhere uh, has Lemoyne or his colleagues, to my knowledge, ever reported that opposition groups in, in Nicaragua that openly support the U.S. attack against Nicaragua and openly identify themselves with the Contras function perfectly freely, uh, not requiring an international ex uh, uh, escort to protect them from uh, assassination on a brief visit and needing no bulletproof vests, uh, and they publish a major journal uh, that's uh, uh, funded by the superpower that's attacking Nicaragua, a journal which openly and explicitly identifies itself with the Contras and serves, uh, that's true in fact, uh, and serves as an instrument of U.S. disinformation in the country. Now this fact, to my knowledge, is entirely without historical precedent. I don't think you can find anything that comes even close to it. Certainly there's nothing in U.S. history or to take a current case, take say Israel, faced with much less of a threat, constantly closing newspapers. In fact, when La Prensa was suspended, Israel closed two newspapers. When La Prensa was opened, Israel closed another newspaper, this one of them in Nazareth, and also closed the Palestinian News Service. The reasons were given, this was just endorsed by the High Court a couple of days ago, goes to the Supreme Court, High Court, and they say, well, uh, we certainly have freedom of expression, but it cannot be used to harm the state of Israel. And no government, they say, uh, will allow a business, however legitimate, uh, that's functioning, that's supported by some uh, hostile power. And the security forces claim without evidence that these uh, journals are supported or related to a foreign power. This is never reported in the United States. Uh, I've never seen any report outside of Alex Coburn, who I don't count as part of the United States. Uh, and what that shows is that the alleged concern over freedom of the press in Nicaragua uh, is simply a form of total fraud and hypocrisy. It's a form of ideological warfare, uh, just as when some communist front organization uh, deplores the uh, human rights violations in the United States uh, and in its domains. Welcoming back to Lemoyne, he states that Nicaragua did not lift its state of siege law, did not offer a full political amnesty, although faced with a similar war, that is a statement that is utterly nonsensical, faced with a similar war, El Salvador did so. That's a completely deceitful rendition of the actual facts for the reasons I already mentioned, uh, quite apart from the fact that the Salvadoran amnesty was an explicit violation of the terms of the accords and has been bitterly condemned by human rights groups who have repeatedly called for it to be rescinded. Continuing with Lemoyne, particularly damaging for Nicaragua, he, he goes on, are the Miranda revelations, which he misrepresents, claiming falsely, I'm quoting him, that the Sandinistas defend the government's right to form a large army and to assess, assist rebel groups in El Salvador. The total lie. Most interestingly, uh, Lemoyne goes on to quote uh, Elliot Abrams, who insists that Nicaragua must be held the most responsible for the treaty's lack of, a of success. You'll notice that that's an order that's loyally followed by Lemoyne and his Times colleagues, and in fact the free press generally. Well, a closer look at these uh, triumphs of voluntary totalitarianism 
is actually instructive. Uh, notice that there's a unanimous agreement among our near unanimous agreement among articulate elites in the United States that uh, Nicaragua must not obtain the means to defend its territory from the CIA supply flights that are required to keep the uh, uh, U.S. proxy army in the field. I might add that the question of illegal U.S. surveillance flights, uh, which are required to coordinate contra-attacks, enabling them to evade the Nicaraguan army and attack what are called soft targets in accordance with State Department orders, uh, that's far beyond the possibility of discussion in the free press. Now, all of this is extremely clear, and it's a very revealing fact. It teaches us a lot about our political culture. It's well understood that uh, to defend its territory from constant U.S. attack, Nicaragua must obtain jet uh, interceptors. There's no other way. And therefore, no one familiar with the U.S. political culture would be surprised at all to discover that the most severe charge against the Sandinistas, the ultimate proof that they must be destroyed, is the allegation that they're attempting to obtain such aircraft. Any indication that Nicaragua might be attempting to obtain vintage 1950s jet planes uh, from the Soviet Union, the United States having blocked all other sources of supply, that elicits almost hysterical outrage. In fact, what's happening is that Nicaragua is threatening to defend its own territory against U.S. attack, and it's an unchallengeable principle of U.S. doctrine that the United States must be free to attack any country that it likes, and it's intolerable an unspeakable scandal, if not outright aggression, for any country, however weak, to defend itself, to try to defend itself from U.S. attack. Notice that that's precisely the meaning of the constant hysteria about Soviet MiGs. There's no other meaning to that. Uh, and it uh, tells us a great 